Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Last week, as we were priming our hearts uh, for this new year, I said that I felt like the Lord said for us this year, the key for us will be to throw our whole selves at this brand new year, particularly to throw ourselves at this new year in a way that God would be pleased with, and the proper measures and the proper proportions led by the Holy Spirit, right? And while this may not be the best year of our lives, I would that it would be the best year possible, right? Given all of the circumstances and all of the things that might conspire against us. And so as we lean into this fast and as we seek to recalibrate and to reset our life, our heart, and our affections, I thought it would be appropriate to begin this brand new year with a teaching series that we're simply calling Spiritual Disciplines. I begin a brand new series this morning that I simply want to call Spiritual Disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are simply practices that are deemed necessary for spiritual formation or spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. Maybe you didn't know this or maybe you've forgotten that really only the only thing we're supposed to do as children of God is to keep growing up, right? When your babies are born, all you really want them to do is to keep growing, right? Keep getting bigger, keep becoming more mature, more self-aware. You just want them to grow up. And that's what we've been tasked to do, to be spiritually formed in the proper way, to be pressing toward greater measures of spiritual maturity and to grow up in God. And these spiritual disciplines are necessary to help form us spiritually. And some of the spiritual disciplines include prayer, Bible study, silence, solitude, serving others, worship, confession, fasting, uh, and more. And in many ways, embracing spiritual disciplines deal both directly and indirectly with the fundamental barrier that we all have that would seek to separate us from God. Can anybody guess what that barrier is? It's a little three-letter word that starts with S. It rhymes with sin. The word is our sin, right? The spiritual disciplines are designed to directly deal with our deepest issue, and that is our sin. And sin is generally defined as an immoral act that is regarded as a serious or regrettable fault, offense, or omission. Sin simply means to miss the mark, to fall short of the target. And the root of our sin, as I say often, is simply our wanting to be the boss rather than surrendering that, uh, that role to God Almighty. And I think that sin can be broken down into two categories, and it's helpful for us to view it in this way. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commissions are sins that we commit, sin, things that we actively do that displease God, lying, infidelity, lashing out in unrighteous anger, things that we actually do, those are sins that we commit, sins of commission, but there's also sins of omission. Those are the things that we leave undone. Maybe we are neglecting generosity, we're being stingy, or we're withholding forgiveness, we're failing to do something. These are sins of omission. So if you're ever wondering, which spiritual disciplines should I lean towards? Which spiritual dis uh, disciplines should I pay the most attention to? You might consider first what types of things in your life that you're wrestling with. 
In other words, if you're struggling with sins of commission, things that you're actually doing, then maybe you want to lean toward the disciplines of abstinence, the things that withdraw you from certain things, right? Uh, if you're struggling with sins of omission, you fail to grasp the significance of generosity or fellowshipping and serving others, you routinely omit, uh, omit uh, this essential practices that will help you grow in maturity and spiritual growth, then maybe for you, you want to engage some things or you want to engage in disciplines of engagement. I hope that makes sense to you. And whether you're needing disciplines of engagement or disciplines of abstinence, the goal of this series and the goal of spiritual disciplines is to introduce these disciplines into your life as a means to challenge the sin that exists in our life uh, so that our ultimate goal can be to be closer to Jesus. So to put it more plainly, to be like Jesus in every possible way. Our goal is to grow up in him to be disciplined, right? But ultimately, the goal of all of this, the spiritual disciplines as we put them together, particularly as we relate them to our life, is to help decenter all of the non-essential nouns from your life. That decenter is a really helpful word because there's a lot of these things that are good things that probably belong someplace in the room of our life. Maybe off in the corner, maybe off to the side, but these things have their way of making their way to the center of our life and sitting on the throne that belongs only to God. And what I've found is that these spiritual disciplines, if we lean toward them, if we put them to work in our life, can decenter the unhelpful nouns out of our life, the people, the places, and things that compete with God for our attention and our affection. So I want to begin this series this morning with a really important spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline of engagement. It's one that we actually have to actually lean towards, and that is the spiritual discipline of generosity. The spiritual discipline of generosity. Generosity simply means to be liberal in giving or sharing, to be unselfish. And one of my favorite quotes concerning generosity that frames it really well comes from the Character in Action website, reads as follows, generosity begins by reaching an understanding of what it means to do good, helpful things for others, and then it acts to consciously and consistently do for others things that are both good and helpful even at personal sacrifice, even when it costs you something. I would go further to say that real generosity always costs you something. Real generosity will always put you out a bit. Amen? And so if we look at the picture that God paints for us in Scripture of God's generosity, we see that he is a perfect model for us. And we also see as we search the pages of Scripture that Generosity must be abundantly present in the life of the children of God because generosity at its core serves to what? Decenter yourself and your interest from the very center of your life in your world. Now, to the unbelieving world, this is absolutely countercultural because who else am I supposed to put in the center of my life but me? I'm supposed to think about me and mine, like that's what we're taught, right? But in the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, God asks us, no, he commands us to remove ourselves from the center of our lives and to place him in thoughtfulness about others. Decenter ourselves and our own interests 
Because we've been charged and created to love God and love people, we set God and others and their interests at the center of our life. But here's what happens. When we do that in community, I don't have to worry about my own interests because you are tasked with thinking about my interests. You understand what I'm saying? And so these spiritual disciplines help us do that in real meaningful ways, especially generosity. It's an absolute deal breaker in the life of a follower of Jesus, but I've come to know that generosity can be undervalued and underrated in our particular culture. That's especially true when we find ourselves in the throes of both personal and communal crises. In other words, if generosity is generally in short supply, it especially gets pushed to the back burner when we're faced with crises. Can anybody think of any present crises that we might be dealing with right now, right? All manners of things and issues brought about by all kinds of social unrest, political unrest, not to mention COVID, which creates all kinds of scarcity, which pushes like generosity even further back. But here's what I know. Generous people have the best lives. Isn't that true? I didn't say they have the most stuff. They often don't. I didn't say they were the best looking. Sometimes they're not. They're not usually the most influential people. I didn't say any of that stuff, but I did say that if you know any generous people, you know that they tend to live the best lives. I'm talking about people who are instinctively generous. They've been discipled in generosity. They're generous without even thinking about it. Their reflexes are thoughtful and considerate liberal in giving and sharing toward others, they have the best lives. Which is why Christians should have the best life, because we're called to walk in generosity. And so I want you to consider this as we walk through this discourse this morning on generosity, that we have been tasked to love God and to love people, and the very core of that commandment is to be, in a word, generous. Amen? And so today I want to talk about generosity, but not just generosity, but I want to talk about generosity and stewardship. Because I know people who are generous, and they're lavish with giving, they're pretty indiscriminate about it, and they, like, I think you can go wrong being indiscriminately generous, indiscriminately just throwing things to the wind. But if we marry generosity with a Christian word called stewardship, where we assign thoughtfulness and purposefulness and care to our generosity, our liberal giving and sharing, I think where those two meet is where we're supposed to live. Where generosity and thoughtfulness and stewardship meet is the sweet spot for kingdom people. And as we walk that out as a spiritual discipline, the landscape of your life will change forever. I promise you. And that's where I want to camp out today. Generosity and stewardship. I want to look at a passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to start at verse 6. While you find that in your Bibles, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you model for us generosity, that you model for us your kingdom kindness. And so you have the moral authority to command us to be generous as well. Father, what I know is that many of us have not been discipled in generosity. We haven't had really good models. And so we've come by our selfishness, quite honestly, and Lord, we ask that you would teach us. Would you help rewire us today? Would you help this make sense? 
Would you help what might seem complicated and far from us? Would you bring it close to us? Put it on a low shelf so that we may lay hold of it. Come, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Pray, Lord, that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. We'll go through verse 11. Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endured forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now this is a standalone verse. It's very powerful because Paul offers us some very powerful like uh, instruction on generosity and goes a little bit deep on this, but I think it's helpful to understand that, and I'm going to actually assign this chapter for homework this week, because I know some of you like to get homework when you come to church, but basically at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth because they have pledged basically some money to help the Jerusalem church. And Paul in this warm, very well-crafted letter is basically saying, hey, I'm just reminding you that you made this pledge, and I've been telling everybody that you've pledged this money. I'm actually sending a couple of guys ahead to get this money. I don't want you to be embarrassed if you don't have it together. I don't want to be embarrassed myself. And so please get the pledge together because you already told us that you would give it. And I've been telling others that you would give it. And so Paul's doing this warm pastoral thing to just say, hey, guys, I'm sending somebody to get uh, what you promised us. But after he goes past those warm salutations, he gets to this section that we're studying today, and in it, I think, contains some really helpful, some helpful words that help us understand uh, the virtue of generosity and what we're called to be this and what God looks for and what God expects, among other things. And so I want to pull a few things out from this text, but I also, after I pull a few things out from this text, I want to get really practical as to how we can begin to walk this out, particularly being generous to God and others with our resources. The first thing that Paul says in this letter is that generosity is cheerful. I want that to sit for a second. Generosity is cheerful. Now, for some of you, there's a huge connect between giving and cheerfulness. In other words, to have those in the same sentence doesn't quite feel right to you. That's like saying, you know, cheerful and root canal. Or serious like consequential audit by the IRS and cheerfulness. Like those two things in your mind don't, don't go together. And that's okay because need I remind you that we're talking about discipline, right? We're talking about growing in discipline. And so much of what we'll talk about over these next few weeks will be things that we're not good at yet. 
we'll be talking about traveling to a place where we don't yet live. Traveling to a state of being or a state of living or a state of understanding the world that we haven't quite been to yet. We're talking about ascending to a higher plane. And so I can imagine that there is some disconnect there, which is precisely why this discourse is important. Verse 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver. He said, don't give reluctantly. Don't, don't give under compulsion or because somebody pressured you or somebody twisted your arm. And, and if you've been around church, particularly different church cultures, you know that there's just some wacky practices surrounding giving. You say, they're taking another arm. Did we just give? Some places look in the plate and say, this, we haven't got enough. Has anybody got 20? Anybody got 30? Anybody got 100? And somebody just gives just so we can just move on to the next part of service. Paul says, this, this isn't the realm of generosity that we're talking about. Not reluctant, not under compulsion. Why? Because if you've ever been on the receiving end of reluctant giving, it doesn't feel good, does it? If you've ever, like, been given something and you know the person has been forced to give it to you, it, 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 it isn't as sweet, is it? And some of you know this because you grew up with siblings. <laughs> and we were often forced to be generous, forced to share. And how many of you know, how many of you remember that if you've ever been forced to give something, you tend to give as little as possible? I remember getting like a third of a chip from my sister, you know, a potato chip. My mom said, you better share with your brother. Mom leaves and she breaks, I mean, the chip's already small. Here, big old bag of M&Ms, give me some. She counts out four, S-O-M-E. Now get out of here. I wasn't getting like this liberal and giving and share. When it, was, when it was reluctant or when it was forced. So Paul is like steering us away from that because that's not the move. Obviously, Paul says, but God loves, dare I say, God expects us to give what? Cheerfully. And the word that's used here also doubles as like hilariously. I don't think that Paul intends us for us to be laughing like hyenas as we give. But the idea is that we're happy to give it. That we're cheerful about it. That there is like, we're giddy about the opportunity to be generous. He continues in verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that at all things and at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. No wonder the person is cheerful, right? Because they understand that God blesses the cheerful, generous life. At all things, at all times, you will have what you need. Now, this works against the idea of God being this sort of vending machine that you just put in a gift and you get the boop, 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 and whatever you want comes out. This is not what Paul is promising us. He's promising us that as we sow generously, God will bless us generously. Amen? So the second thing I see in this text is that Paul points out that the seed comes from God. Now, the seed comes from God. Again, 
you know, oftentimes when we talk about generosity, we're using agricultural language, like sowing and reaping, right? We sow seed into the ground, or we sow generosity to God and others. And Paul frames this as seed coming from God. Now, this is really important. This is really, like, necessary. And in fact, this should and could be the starting point for generosity, particularly when we talk about stewardship, because we talk about stewardship as not managing your own stuff well, but managing stuff that has been left in your care. That is to say, it doesn't belong to you. You've been just, it's been loaned to you, or you, you've just been given charge over it. Paul reminds us that the seed comes from God. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower, or he who gives you the seeds to sow, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He who supplies seed. Who supplies the seed? Home Depot? In the little garden department where you go and you look for cantaloupe or you know, tulips or whatever? Is he talking about these big manufacturers that give seed to farmers? No, he's talking about almighty God the source of the seed. And what follows is if you can remember where the seed comes from, you can be cheerful about sowing it. To say more is if you are aware of his abundant supply and his faithfulness to meet every need, which we just read a few verses ago, you'll be eager to sow because you know the source of every good gift. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it are his. And so the beginning of generosity understands that the seed comes from God. And what it further understands is the stuff that you have, all of it, is not yours. He said, I went to school for this. I worked hard for this. Yeah, you did, but the seed comes from God. No, this is mine. What, really? Did you determine what color you'd be? Or what advantages you'd have? Or what gender you'd be? Or whether you'd be born in Chicago or born in Sierra Leone or the Ivory Coast or someplace that's more hostile and oppressive? Did you choose that too? So faithful generosity starts by understanding it is God who has given me everything that I have. I'm not just talking about my money. I'm talking about my kids. I'm talking about my wife. I'm talking about my intellects. I'm talking about my smarts. I'm talking about every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father above. Seed comes from God. And here's what I know. If you're fuzzy about where the seeds come from, you will have a problem with generosity. You're fuzzy about where the seed comes from. If you erroneously think that your seed comes from you and that you're responsible for reproducing seed, then you'll be, you'll handle it with scarcity. If you just don't know or don't care or haven't considered how you've come to be blessed in the way that you've come to be blessed, you won't have this deep and abiding faith in a generous God with an abundant supply. And so naturally, it will, it will follow that you'll be reluctant to give. You'll be reluctant to sow. You'll be afraid of how your needs will be met or who has more than you and onward and downward 
it goes. The seed comes from God. And here's what I know. Some of you want to be generous. But so often we're not, right? Here's what I know. Just as pastoring and talking to people about giving is one of my main jobs. is to help people understand the reality of generosity. And to be the chief fundraiser for an organization like this that requires lots of resources in order to run. I know that lots of people want to be generous, but they don't know how. Lots of people want to be generous, but they're afraid. You haven't had good models. You don't know where to begin. And especially when it comes to church and church people, we've seen a lot of misuse and we've seen a lot of abuse. And so we're anxious about that. Many of us for good reason. And so you might come to this point of the message with, Pastor, okay, you've convinced me that generosity should be the way of life for a Christian. You've convinced me that we serve a generous God, abundant in supply, and that he provides seed for the sower. But how do we begin to walk this out? We've got questions. Who, how, when, where, right? Well, I want to just offer two specific areas that are supposed to be the objects of our generosity, uh, and then we'll take it from there. The first area is God. The first object of our generosity should be to God. Who should we give to, Pastor? Primarily, you should give to God. To actively give of your resources to God. Now, this is super important. Because if we have a fundamental understanding that all that we have has been given to us to steward, to manage, then when God comes knocking and asks for some of it back and we don't readily give to him, it, 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 it means that in some way we haven't quite understood the assignment. I'll say it again. If it's all his anyway and we fail to give back to him what he's asking for, then we have misunderstood the assignment. Put a different way, if I give you $10 and I say, hey, hold this money for me. You could spend some of it if you need to, but this is my money. Just hold it for me, manage it for me. And I come and ask for some of my money back and you are reluctant to give it to me. You have misunderstood the assignment. And so the primary place, the first place that we're supposed to be generous is to God through what we call tithes and offerings. The method of tithing and offering is a way that we can be systematic in our giving. And this systematic word is really, really important because if you're like the average person who's not wired to be generous in the ways that we're supposed to be generous, it doesn't come natural. We don't have the natural instincts that at the right time and with the right people and moved by the Holy Spirit to be generous. And so what many people find, particularly as they lean into this for the first time or for the first time in a long time, is that if they're not systematic about it, then it won't happen. If they don't plan to give, if they don't set some things in motion where it's automatic or where it's systematic, then many of you have tried many times and failed many times to be generous, but you haven't been systematic about it. But here's the thing. We're systematic about everything else. That Netflix thing, that just automatically comes out, doesn't it? 
cell phone bill, some of you have, it's an automatic thing, right? Uncle Sam gets his off the top, Netflix, power bill. Well, like we're systematic about that, but some of us can be arbitrary and conveniently forgetful about what is due the Lord, structured and planned in giving of tithes and argue. Say, so what is a tithe? Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the field or fruit from the trees, belong to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. And it's been a Christian tradition that a tenth of what we have, a tenth of what we bring in, goes to the Lord first. And let me just say that the tithe is the floor and not the ceiling. You can do more than 10%. But there's a basic, systematic approach that many Christians for years and years and years have said, 10% belongs to the Lord. Now, this means 10% of my income before taxes come out. 10% before the Netflix bill, before the Hulu bill, before the Disney Plus. 10% my first fruits belong to God. Now, this is really, really important because... You know, if you're like me and my wife, we, we have two full-time jobs between us. We have a couple side hustles. We're regularly blessed by somebody here. Pastor, thank you. Uh, this is just a, an encouragement for you. And so what 10% looks like from week to week and month to month, if you look at our giving records, it varies. But it doesn't matter what money comes in from, from these various earning streams. We feel like 10% of it, without question goes to the Lord. And some of you, like this is a hard concept for you to grasp. So let me help you. You might like grapefruits. Ten grapefruits. should have got something that wasn't so round. <laughs> ten grapefruits. Yeah, ten grapefruits. This one's kind of juicy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten grapefruits. They're all the Lord's. The Lord says, steward this for me. But one-tenth, just give that back to me right away. So I get to keep nine grapefruits. Nine grapefruits. This one. I give to the Lord. Right? Some of you said that's cool and everything, Pastor, but if you if you're if you're thinking about my income, you would not use large grapefruits to illustrate what we make. Grapefruits don't do it. Great fruits are too big. Put those in there. Great fruits. Great fruits. This is my cuties. You might like these. Ten of these out. That one's rotten. Ten. Great fruits. Let me use the soft one. That'll work for the illustration. Two, four, six, eight, ten. ten cuties. There's a rotten one in here, right? 
The Lord gives us 10 of these. He says, handle that for me. But give me one back. He doesn't want you to pick the squishy one. <laughs> First fruits, the best. Off the top, before any kids comes, Netflix comes. Wait, wait. Uncle Sam, wait. Let me get the best one, good one. Off the top. That's the Lord's. You say, Lord, you say, you say preacher, really good illustration. I like that you, got, you had some smaller unit, but you don't understand. Uh, cuties don't even describe my income. You see, me and my family, we're, we're living off peanuts. How many? Ten. Ten. Okay. Ten. Ten peanuts. Ten peanuts. Can you see this? Ten peanuts. Tenth goes to the Lord. Now we can cake, we can go get some rice, right? We can go get some mustard seeds. We can take it on down the line. What am I trying to illustrate? It don't matter what you make. The seed comes from the Lord. It's been loaned to you. It's been left in your care. And when the Lord comes knocking and say, I want some of it back, your disposition to that request should be monitored. It should, it should be monitored. But some of you say, okay, that makes, that's hard, it's challenging, I got to sit with that, but, but, but where does my money go when I give it? You know, bring my tithe and offering to the, to the church, like what where does it go? That's a really good question. And let me just tell you, if you ever are at a church and you ask somebody that and they can't give you an answer, get, it out, of, get out of there real quick. I mean, real quick. But what you should know is that within the context of Christian community, that your money, the tithes and offerings that you give, are necessary for funding church life. That is to say that what you give directly goes to funding what we do here as a church. We have a mission. God gave us a vision. And to live that out requires people and requires resources. So every dollar you give, a portion of that goes to operational things like phone, internet, gas, light, water. Listen, the city loves us. They love us. The mayor was here for our celebration, but they don't give us free utilities. Accounting, bookkeeping, snow removal, thank heavens, trash removal, maintenance and repairs, a portion of what you give, as unspiritual as that sounds, goes to operational things. 
portion of what you give to the church goes to pay staff salaries. Along with myself, there's 11 other people. There's 11 people on staff. And they do a fantastic job. I regularly say that I get to work with a dream team, right? And so our PAC, our Pastoral Advisory Council, which serves as our church board, our church council, they set salaries and hourly pay rates and uh, staff salaries. And I thank you for that. We believe in paying people a decent wage with due consideration to what's available and sort of the national averages and things like that. But a portion of what you give pays staff salaries to carry out the mission. Gear, equipment, and supplies, tech, sound, video. Those of you watching online, you're able to do this because we were able to buy much-needed video and audio equipment. The worship team enjoys quality instruments and microphones and things like that, and a portion of what you give goes to that. You come in on a day where we're not trying to you know, socially distance and remove masks. There's coffee, and there's tea, and there's lemonade, and there's water. And pre-COVID, we had a nice continental breakfast deal over there, right? And at various meetings and functions, we have food. Like, your money goes to support that. Supplies for student ministries and, and kids' church. All those things, a portion of your money goes to take care of those things. In this church, we run an office. Computers, printers, paper, office supplies, all those things. Uh, a portion of your giving goes to those things. Here's another thing. We ask you to give a tithe. We feel like we should give a tithe. So 10% of what comes in goes out to our Puerto Rico partnership, our missions partnership with church planting effort in Puerto Rico, the Vineyard Church Planting Effort in Puerto Rico. A portion of that 10% goes to a local mission, Restoration Ministries, where we go and serve. They do an after-school program, a boxing gym, halfway house for men and women. Like portion of every dollar you give goes to Restoration Ministries, and a portion of every dollar you give goes to our national movement or our denomination to continue the broader mission there, right? So a portion of what you give goes to those in our church and in our community who have a need, both in and outside of our congregation. There are people struggling to put food on the table. There are people struggling to pay their rent or their mortgage. Sometimes, oftentimes, we get calls from outside of the church, and regularly we're aware of needs on the inside of the church. We just took up a holiday offering and raised almost $3,800, and we're able to bless a number of families with a nice gift right before the holidays and the texts that we got and the letters that came back with how God used those specific amounts to meet specific needs warms the heart and God used you to do that because some of the money you give regularly goes to meet immediate pressing needs of the community. It's so important that we be good stewards of this public trust, your money, that we've hired somebody, it's somebody's job to keep track of every nickel, to chase down every receipt, especially from me, <laughs> right? And so it's not uncommon for me to get an email from Jenny, hey, I, what'd you get at Home Depot for $13.19? I need the receipt, or I need a personal check for that amount. <laughs> Why? Because this is not the pastor's kitty. This isn't my Cadillac fund. 
This is the money that you've given back to God for the purpose of continuing the mission here. Simple as that. And it's been surprising to me as a church boy who's been around the church my whole life, how many people it hadn't occurred to them that the money that they give is directly needed and used to fund church life. Which is why we take time to share. Were we appropriate the funds? Which is why when you get your giving statement in a few weeks, attached to it will be a financial breakdown of what came in and where it went. Because if we can ask you to give to us, we should be able to tell you, amen, where it's going. You say, cool, okay, I'm supposed to give 10%, tithe, good. Um, but, but where should I give it? The short answer is, there are many reputable places where you can sell, where you can give to God. All sorts of organizations that have been audited and given the seal of approval by those who you know, accredit organizations in that way. But I think that you should sell where you eat. You say, Brother Gino, I give all the time. I haven't given anything to the church, but every month I send some money to Brother Kenneth Copeland because I just love his preaching. Or Bishop Jakes, I have just loved the Potter's House and their men. Or Michael Todd in Tulsa, oh, he's such a, I, I, I love, nothing against those guys. But who you call in the middle of the night when your kid's missing? Like, where do you drop your kids off for an hour and a half to be cared for and be told about Jesus? Who you call when your marriage is on the rocks? Who's going to show up for you with a care package when you're in the hospital? Like, like, that's where you should probably, probably so. Because I don't go to Fridays and eat and take the check over to Chili's and pay it. You understand what I'm saying? And what I'm saying is if this is where you and your family are fed, why not sow your seed here as you benefit from what we do here. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Here's what I'm going to also say since we're talking about it. There have been many people that I've talked to who either philosophically or theologically take issue with the principle of the tithe. That is to say that when they look at the scriptures, they don't quite see it that way. Or they don't quite see that as the standard. To that I say, that is a respectable position, and I'm not going to try to argue you out of it. What I will ask you is, what in your mind is God calling you to do in its place? Because as the standard evolves, it's probably not less. And it's most certainly not nothing. I want you to hear me. And let me just say, I'm, I'm beyond the point of being intimidated by anybody who doesn't like this. Because this is a deep, rich, spiritual principle that if you don't grab, grasp this, it'll be hard to be aligned with God and the things of God. 
So I say this with pastoral warmth. Hopefully it's coming off warm. But I say it with deep, deep conviction. Because God doesn't have your money. He doesn't have you. If God doesn't have your money, he doesn't have you. And I know how the enemy works here. He gets real cynical, right? And some of you are like, I really like this church. And I was just, I was just counting down the days where some slick preacher was going to get up and start hitting me up for money. Well, guess what? We were doing fine before you got here. And we'll be doing fine if you leave. Which is also to say that if you want to put this to the test and you think that I might be, uh, there might be some conflict of interest with me being the messenger, sow it someplace else. Put God to the test. God's got great bookkeepers. He can keep track of where your gift goes if it doesn't come here. But put God to the test. Try it. Give it to World Vision. Send it to Brother Copeland or to Bishop Jakes. But sow it and put God to the test and start today. He said, this is tight. It's a discipline. This is offensive. It's a discipline. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to be tight. But guess what happens as you practice disciplines? It becomes instinctive. It becomes what you do. When we're counting up what we have to work with, that 10% or whatever we've purposely, we don't even count it anymore. It's not ours to even work with. It's not even an option, see? But you never get to that point unless you start. So give to God. The second and final thing I say in the worship team, you can come up as my time is up. It's to give to other people. Love God, love people. Two objects of our generosity, love God, love people. The other object is to give to other people. And in the same way that it can be challenging, especially if we haven't been discipled in this way, uh, to give to God, it can be challenging to give to others. Especially if you grew up not having enough, especially if everything was hand to mouth and, 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 and the circumstances of your life has coached you toward viewing life with a scarcity mindset. It can be hard. And so if you don't plan to give, you simply will not. So, so who do I give to, preacher? Like, You've got all the answers. Who do I give to? Well, I think you can start with the people who are close to you. Now, you think this would go without saying, right? But I have found, the more I do this job, that people can be the stingiest with the people who are most proximate to them. So give your shirt off your back to a stranger or to somebody in the church but your family doesn't benefit from your warm generosity. You say, I put food on that table. You're supposed to put food on the table. That's not being generous. That's being a dad. I bring my whole paycheck home. You're supposed to bring your whole paycheck home. This is, this is not that. 
This is warm, thoughtful kingdom generosity to the people who are closest to you, to the people who live with you, to the people you work with that see you every day. Are we generous to those nearest to us? It's the friends, it's the neighbors, it's the co-workers. How have you planned to be generous to them? This also concept of others talks about those who are in need. And what I know is that if your heart isn't calibrated toward generosity, you will go about with all kinds of needs all around you and you just won't see it. But as you allow the Lord to tune your heart to the frequency of heaven, all of a sudden you'll see needs everywhere. Everywhere. And my challenge to you as I close today is to be strategic, to be sacrificial, and to be systematic about how you choose to be generous to other people. Friend, family, stranger, don't matter. And the Lord might be challenging you to start right now. Right now. Say, preacher, this is, this is hard for me. This is going to be a stretch. Good. Let's stretch together. Let's lean in together. As God moves our hearts toward the cheerful generosity, understanding that seed comes from the Father, that we might be generous to God and generous to others, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, one inch, one step at a time, whether you are two or 200, this is for all of us. How's the Spirit working in you right now? For some of you, this is just an encouragement because you already do this well. Others of you, you will have to do, as the song says, you will have to make some room. You'll have to move some things around. You will have to reorder your priorities so that you can make room to be generous. Why don't you stand with me if you can? Father in heaven, I thank you for your, your generosity. I thank you for this challenge today. Whether we're working with grapefruits or peanuts, I pray that we'd be generous to you and others. For the ways that we've been discipled to look at the world through eyes of scarcity and to be fearful and to hoard, God, make us a blessing. May we be the answer to somebody's prayer. Teach our hearts, Lord, to be generous as we make room. Come Holy Spirit.